I'll tell you something that is a conundrum to me. It's not only a conundrum, it's an incredible frustration to me. It is this thing that I see in the lives of so many people, brethren, fellow ministers, you name it. I see a disconnect. I I see at times people who are so committed to certain truths that are revealed from God's Word. They believe those things. They will stand for those things. They will fight you about those things. But at the same time, the day-to-day movements of their life are filled with everything but the things of God. There is a lack of spirituality, a concern for spiritual things, a dwelling on their own sin, a pursuit of His holiness. It is a disconnect that I don't know that I know the answer to. I'm incredibly frustrated as I've seen that in so many people, even my own brethren and sometimes entire congregations that that just seem to be, that's how you would describe them. And can I tell you, I become even more frustrated as I see that attitude at times in myself. I know what is right. I preach what is right. I will stand for what is right. Because I believe that He is the Lord. He is the one from whom all authority flows. He is the one by which we will test every spirit that is brought before us. We will stand upon His Word But then at times, I find my life consumed with everything but the things of God. I think, I wonder, I wonder at times if it is not because I have been completely convicted of the fact that Jesus is to be the Lord of my life but that I have neglected the idea that He is not only the Lord, He is not only the one who reveals truth to me, but that He is also my Savior. He is the one who has died for me. He is the one that gives me hope, and I would have hope in no other way. He is the one who has sacrificed so that I can stand before you and I can call myself a Christian And I need to be overwhelmed by that fact. Yes, that He is my Lord. But yes, that He is my Savior. Those two ideas that we dare not separate. At times, I think there are those in the religious world that that have embraced the idea of Jesus as our Savior and neglected the idea of Jesus as our Lord. But when I look at myself, and unfortunately when I look at so many of my brethren from time to time, I think we flip that at times. That we get the idea that He's our Lord, 
but that we don't constantly dwell upon Him as our Savior. Peter would write, and 2 Peter, all throughout his letter, combining these things. You can follow along, just a few verses. But he will constantly and consistently refer to Jesus in this way. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be supplied to you. 2 Peter 2 and verse 20. For, after having, for, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, how do we do that? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and they overcome. Then the last state has become worse than the first. Chapter 3 and verse 2. I'm speaking these things, I'm writing these things that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And in chapter 3, in verse 18, he ends his, his, he ends his letter by saying, But grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. I want us to know that Jesus is the Lord. I do not believe I could over-preach that. But equally, I want us to be convicted that He is not only the Lord of our lives, He is the Savior of our souls. In the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, we are presented with a picture, a constantly and consistently an idea that, that there is someone who is coming. Sometimes you've heard the Old Testament explained in that way, right? There's someone who is coming. The idea behind it, we talk about the Messiah, the messianic prophecies of someone who is coming, someone who is going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom in the future. And all through the Old Testament, people are looking for one who is coming. And the, the, the idea of, of the Messiah, literally, it just means the, the one who is anointed. And, and we see this, this sort of verbiage used Throughout the Old Testament, or at least in Hebrew, you, you see this, this verbiage used. It's it's applied to, to people who are anointed as priests, or they are anointed as prophets, or they are anointed as the king. And, and we, we don't typically anoint people in such a formal fashion, but you'll see pictures of that all through the Old Testament. But there is one who is coming. There is one who is coming to be anointed, who is selected to be the prophet and the priest and the king. And so it's not just one who is anointed, it's the one who is anointed. Much in the same way we we talk about the the Bible, right? And and Bible just means book. That's all that it means. But but this is the book, right? It's, It's taken on that sort of understanding. Jesus is the one. Jesus is to be the one, 
the anointed one, the one who has been anointed to to fulfill the greatest mission that, that has ever been given to save us, to save us all from our sins. In Judaism, in Judaism, the Messiah was this future king, this king of kings who who will sit on the throne of David. You read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he's going to explore this thought, this Redeemer of the Jewish people and of humanity. In Christianity, we see that in the fulfillment of Jesus, the Christ. It means the same thing, right? Messiah, Messiah is Hebrew for the Anointed One. Christ is Greek for the anointed one. It's the same person. To say Messiah, to say, to, to, to say Christ, it means the same thing. And the people were looking for this, for this individual. You remember when, when Jesus sat down with the Samaritan woman and she was asking him all of these questions about, about worship and, and where they were supposed to worship and what the future would hold. And she says there in John 4 and verse 25, as, as Jesus gives her part of the answer that she's looking for, She says, well, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. See, she has this concept of, we have a lot of questions, and I don't know how this is all going to play out, but I know that one day, one day there's someone who is going to come, the Messiah, the Christ, and He's going to give us all of these answers that we we look for. And so there are these prophecies that are found throughout, throughout the Old Testament, in particular throughout the prophets. We, we read about one who is going to come, and he's going to bring a new covenant. Prophesied that, that he would be rejected by the people, that, that he would be depicted as that, as that suffering servant who would bear our sins. We, we, read, we read about how he will be born of a virgin, about how he would be pierced, how he would enter into the city on a donkey. He would come from Egypt. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be a descendant of David. And we could go on and on with all the things that the prophets would say about the Messiah. Remember Herod would call in the wise men to say, what, what, what do the scriptures say? How, how do I know where this, where this king is to be born? And they would look. They would look for one who was going to come to save them. Whether they lived every single day in the midst of that sacrificial system, in the midst of the law that was designed to show them the reality of sin, to show them the impact that sin was having on their life. That's why the law was there, right? To be that tutor, to be that, 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 that schoolmaster, to teach us about how bad the problem really is, or whether they thought about their oppression as a people. And there was one who was coming who could give them hope. You know, when we read so much of the prophets and, and so much of what went into the imagery of this Messiah or this one who was to come, you have to understand many of the people that the prophets were writing to about this Messiah were people who were oppressed. Most of us don't know anything about oppression. These were people that soldiers had come into their homes, soldiers had come in, 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 into their communities and dragged them away. 
separating families, moving families. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, you, you pick your time throughout, throughout history. Can you imagine what your mental state would be if someone came in and they said, you're, go- you're going somewhere else? I'm taking you away from your homeland. I'm taking you away from everything that you've ever known. I'm taking you away from this place that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents have lived and made a home, and I'm going to force you to go live in some foreign land. Do you think think that it would be on your mind, who is going to save me from this? Wouldn't it? Even when the people are allowed to return home. Even when they're allowed to to, to return home. And we read in Ezra and Nehemiah about about those Persians and they would let them go back and they would would rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple of sorts, but but they they were an oppressed people. Even in the time of the New Testament, when we see the Jewish nation, you get out of line and the Romans are going to come and they're going to squash you because they're the ones that you pay your taxes to. They're the ones who are really in control. I mean, can can you picture what it would be like if we walked outside and instead of the flag of the United States of America, there was a flag of communist China flying right there in our parking lot? Because that's got... Not kind of. That's where they lived. And so they're looking for one. Who's going to free us from this? Do you understand why they struggled with with, with the idea that when they heard about this kingdom that was to come in the midst of their oppression, all they could really think about was this physical kingdom? I mean, we look at them and we say, well, how did you not understand that? Listen, I think it would have been really hard to, to, to think something otherwise. Because this was in their face every single day. But they lived with this one singular hope that there was someone, there was one person, there was an anointed one, there was a Messiah who was going to come and he was going to save them. He was going to redeem them. But I want you to, I want you to feel the desperation Not just the desperation as an oppressed people, but the desperation as a people that are oppressed by sin. There's not a foreign nation that is occupying our land that we are helpless to do anything about. We don't live in that circumstance. Some people do in this world. We don't. But every single one of us should know and should feel the oppression of our own sin that helplessness that we have to do anything about it. That sin that no matter how much we hate, that no matter how much we preach against, that no matter how much we we strive to avoid, we find ourselves continually falling prey to, continually embracing with our lives. And the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I want us to feel that. I want us to dive deep, dive into places that that we don't know, none of us want to go because they are so overwhelming. And to see our sin and to see helplessness. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we miss it because we've heard the gospel so many times for so long that we just take it for granted. I want us to be reminded 
of the fact that none of us, none of us, no matter how good you are, no matter how much better you are than me, no matter how much better you are than others, none of us can save our own souls without a Savior. And so, and so as the nation looks year after year after year, generation after generation after generation, we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the Christ, the one who is anointed to be our Savior. I'm looking for the one who is not just going to come and tell me what to do. Yes, He is the Lord. But I'm looking for the Lord who is going to come to save my soul. We begin to read about a man named Jesus. We read early in his life, there in Luke chapter 2, we actually read about his birth. There in Luke chapter 2, in verse, in verse 18, we, we have this, this picture of shepherds who are out in the field. And they're just doing what shepherds do. They're tending to the sheep. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, an angel appears to them. Luke 2 and verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I mean, we, we read these things, right? We, we, we hear, you know, we hear Charlie Brown talking about these things. But do you understand what, 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 this is, what this is saying? These are people that for generations have been looking. They, they're, they're, they're godly people. They're devout people. We, we're looking for the Messiah, and I'm going about my day-to-day life, going to work, doing what I always do, and right there in the middle of my day, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears before me. There is this glory of the Lord that shines around them, and they're scared to death. What in the world? What's going on? I'm just telling you. As much as people like to talk about how if I could have a minute with God, I'd tell him this or I'd tell him that. When you open up the Word of God, when people come face to face with God, even with an angel of the Lord, they get quiet and humble in a real big hurry. Angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Messiah. I'm bringing you the good news that the Messiah, the one that there is no hope without. The Christ has been born. See, it's not Jesus' last name, guys. You, you, you read through the Gospels, it's Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the son of Joseph. Christ is Jesus the Christ. Later on it becomes so synonymous, people start saying Jesus Christ. But when we see that word Christ, we ought to think Savior. Jesus, the one who saves us. 
I bring you this good news that the Christ has been born. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. But it's this proclamation that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior has been born. It's really this beautiful picture of hope coming into the world. If, if you're not overwhelmed by what's going on there, I want to challenge you to spend some time just reading and rereading that because it's an overwhelming statement. We drop everything and we go to worship this one. Later on, the Bible begins to pick up in the ministry of Jesus and Jesus finds himself amongst the disciples of John, right? Right? And John, who was that forerunner of the Christ, coming to, to, make, to, 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 make, to make straight those crooked paths, coming to prepare the way for Christ, and he comes and, and John tells his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And we read about Andrew in John 1 and verse 41, and what he said when after he found Jesus the Bible says he first found his own brother Simon and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. I'm telling you, you got to come and see this. Because the one that we've been talking about, you know, we talk about it, but we don't really expect it to be. You know what I'm talking about? We talk about the fact the Lord's coming again, but none of us think we're going today. I'm telling you, he's here. The Christ, we found him. You've got to come and you've got to see this. And his disciples are in this process of, of learning and of, of investigation. And later on in the ministry of, of Jesus, when we get over, over to Mark chapter 8, and Jesus asks, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? I mean, there's all these different ideas that people have about Jesus and who He is and what He does. And they answered, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. Okay, but, but who do you say that I am? I want to see if you get it. I know that you've left everything to follow me. I know that you acknowledge some authority within me. I know that you acknowledge that I am great and, 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 that, and that you ought to follow me. I know that you know that I'm the Lord, but I want to see if you really get it. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the one that we have looked for without hope in ourselves. We have looked for to find hope in you for generations. You are the Christ. And he strictly warned him that he should tell no one about him. This process of people beginning to understand who exactly Jesus is. He is the one who has been anointed to save the world. The Christ, the Messiah. All the way through His crucifixion and His resurrection and His 40 days of glory as He appears to others in His resurrected state, all the way to the day of Pentecost. Right? All the way there that when Peter will preach that first gospel sermon and he will, and he will speak about, about the prophecies, the messianic, 
prophecies of Joel. He will speak about the prophecies that came forth from David and the one who would come and the one who would come. And all the way down to Acts 2, and I know we we know verse 38, but I want us to feel verse 36. All the way to, to the conclusion of his sermon when he says, Therefore, based upon all of these things that I've been telling you, and you're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. You're trying to figure out what in the world is the thing, you know, with this rushing wind and this tongue of fire and speaking in different, in different tongues and different languages. You're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I'm telling you, this is just the culmination of what the prophets and our forefathers as devout Jews have been talking about and looking for. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I want you to understand, that's what you did. You crucified him. When Pilate said, let somebody else go, and you yelled out, crucify him. I don't care. I just want him dead. I want him shut up. Do you know what you were doing? Do you know what you did? We could say the same thing about our sin. Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you did? God has made him both Lord and Christ. You have crucified the one that we have looked for for generations and without whom there is absolutely no hope. I want you to feel the pit that must have existed in their stomach when they heard that. These aren't godless people. These aren't people who could care less. These are devout men from all over the world. They got out of bed that morning saying, I'm going to serve God if I don't do anything else. And I'm telling you, you crucified the Christ. You crucified the Messiah. You crucified the Savior. And when they heard this, the Bible says they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And I know you weren't there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost to hear Peter's sermon, but I want to ask you, do you feel that same pit in your stomach when you realize we've sinned against God? We've sinned against the Lord. We've rejected the Christ. What do we do? I have messed up so badly. I know I have. I think about my sin. And I'm frustrated with my sin. And I, if I could, aren't there things in your life that you, if I could go back and redo it, I would redo it? If I could go back and say something else, if I could go back and not say anything, do something else, not do it, if I could just go back and redo it, I would do it. But I, what do I do? How do I make this right? I don't see, I don't have an answer to that. What shall we do? What we, just tell me what to do. Tell me how we can fix this. And when we, when we get to that point, when we get to that point, I'm telling us that's exactly where we need to be. Where we understand, I don't just need a, a Lord 
I don't just need someone to tell me what to do and what to believe and what time to show up. I need all those things, but I need a Savior. I need someone who will pay the price that's greater than I can pay. Tell me what to do. That's when 3,000 people hear his words, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell us, if we get this, it changes us. If we get that, yes, Jesus is our Lord, but he is not just our Lord. He is our Lord, and he is our Savior. I am convinced it is the difference between cold, between cold obedience and radical submission. It is the difference between I'm going to do all the right things and believe all the right things and stand for all the right things, and I'm going to be overwhelmed by the right things. I'm going to be transformed from the inside out. I'm not only going to going to look to him for his authority but i'm going to look to him for his sacrifice and i'm going to be amazed at his grace he is my lord and he is my savior it's the difference it's the difference in being baptized because god says that we must does god say that we must be baptized does he shake your head up and down right he is the Lord. He says that Ever, all throughout the Bible. Baptism connected with, with the removal of sin. But somewhere along the way, we've gotten this idea, well, I've been baptized. Yeah, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you're right with God. That doesn't mean that you reflect Christ. Isn't it more than that? Why do we get to the end of, to the end of life and people who have rejected God all of their life except for one time, 50 years ago, they were baptized and people want to talk about their baptism. It, it meant nothing. It's the, difference, it's the difference in being baptized because God says that we must and being immersed into his death because I must die to myself so that I might possibly definitely be resurrected and to arise to walk in a newness of life. It's not just a, a ceremony that I went through that, 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 that took 10 seconds, but it's a line of demarcation that everything changed from that point forward. It is the difference. It is the difference in showing up here this morning because that is the right thing to do. Today is the Lord's Day, and the first century church came together on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7, and we know that, and that's why I'm here. It is a difference in that and actually coming together to worship God. It is the difference between, between being opposed to the use of mechanical instruments of, uh, in, in our worship or any addition that, that might not be authorized by the Word of God. It is the difference in being opposed to those things and actually singing praise to His name. I'm telling you, telling you there are people who would be fighting mad if you would say that we ought to add an instrument to our worship and I would be amongst them but at times those same people would sit in a pew Sunday after Sunday and they wouldn't even lift their voice to sing praises to God that's bad theology he is our Lord 
and He is our Savior. I've got to be overwhelmed by that. That impacts this moment, but it ought to impact every moment of my life. It's the difference in putting a cracker and juice in our mouth because you know what? That's what they did in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Can I tell you, we don't partake of a Lord's Supper because they did in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We partake of a Lord's Supper because Jesus Christ gave His body and shed His blood. And how easy it is for me to forget that when I forget that He's more than my Lord. He's my Savior. It's the difference in having any number of a list of things. And you, you, maybe you should do this at lunch today. Maybe it would be a good exercise for us. Any list of things that, that we do because they're right, because of what He has decreed, because of what He has revealed. Because we don't want to get in trouble, either in this life or the next. All those things are true. I do it it's right. I don't want the consequence of sin in this life. I certainly don't want the consequence of life in eternity. But how about taking that next step that I don't just do it because it's right, but I do it because I have a burning desire to actually reflect His holy image. He is our Lord and Savior. May you feel the burden of both of those titles. May we not only feel the burden of those titles, may we feel the hope and the relief of those titles. May we be convicted that I'm going to do what He says because He said it. But I'm also going to have, I'm also going to have a confidence in my eternal home because of who He is. I will be overwhelmed by those things. And so we extend His invitation. I'm telling you about the Messiah. I'm telling you about the Christ who left heaven and came to earth. And if He is not your Savior, it's not because He doesn't want to be your Savior. We have these conversations about forgiveness and how God forgives sins and when God forgives sins. They're good. We had some, uh, I think, even, even last Sunday night. But do we understand that we have a God who, while we were still in our sin, He sent His Son to die on the cross? He didn't send His Son to die on the cross hoping that we'd get it together one day. He sent His Son to die on the cross knowing that we didn't get it together one day. Knowing full well who we would be, what we would do. And He still loved us. He is our Savior. We ought to emulate that in the way that we live our lives, but we ought to emulate that in the way that we respond to His invitation. If He is not your Savior, this is the point I'm trying to get, it's not because He didn't love you. If He is not your Savior, it's not because He didn't run towards you. If He hasn't transformed your life and taken hold of your heart and of your soul and captivated your mind, it's not because He hasn't done everything within His power to make 
me as a sinful human being into his disciple who would reflect his image. He did everything. If he is not your Savior, it is simply because you have never given yourself to him. And his invitation is come and repent. You come and you make a commitment to walk in another way. I'm done walking in my way. I want to walk in his way. My way leads to death. It leads to destruction. I've walked it too many times. I know. His way leads to life. It's his invitation. It's his invitation to come and to be immersed in that watery grave and to have our sins washed away. Not because there's something special about the water, but because there's something special about the blood. And we arise to walk in a newness of life. If you're filled with anxiety, if you're filled with dread, if you're filled with worry, it's not because He's not sitting on His throne. It's not because He isn't active and involved in your life. It's not because He's not protecting you. It's simply because we refuse to embrace His power. And He says to you, And to me, he says to all those folks that frustrate me so much, and he says to that person that I look at in the mirror that frustrates me even more, I am your Lord, and I am your Savior. Come to me. That's his invitation. You come this morning if you have a need as we stand and as we sing.